Okay, it's a pleasure to be here again. And yes, my nom de guerre is Nail25. That was my uh, fact call sign a long time ago in Southeast Asia. How many Southeast Asia vets here? Where's all my fact buddies tonight? Good, I'm well protected. Good, they got my six. Um, General alluded to the fact that uh, since I left active duty and the reserves and all that, uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to do some uh, work with various government agencies in the Washington area there. I live in Fairfax, Virginia now, and uh, have developed quite a historical knowledge about uh, search and rescue, combat search and rescue, all that kind of stuff. How does this advance? The top button? And this is where we're going to go tonight. So let me give you a little quick background here. Back in our days when we were young tigers flying in Southeast Asia, somebody got shot down, we would execute a search and rescue mission, SAR, okay? And really, SAR was any kind of a recovery we would do for anybody anywhere in any kind of a situation. Uh, if somebody was out in the ocean lost and we were going to try to rescue them, that was a SAR. If they were shot down near Hanoi and we were sending in the big strike package to get them out, that was a SAR. We learned in later years, though, that there's a fundamental difference between how you rescue somebody in a relatively benign environment as opposed to in enemy territory. In enemy territory, it's combat. So we started calling it combat search and rescue. So the difference in terms there. And in, uh, today, we refer to it all as personnel recovery. Now, that's not a fancier, newer term for all this. It's a, more, it's a more inclusive term, which means all of the things that we do now to be able to rescue our folks if they get an extremis. It's the trainage, it's the equipage, it's the doctrine, it's all of those things so that we can then, when necessary, do tactical missions like SAR or CSAR to get our folks out. And in doing a lot of deep analysis and study and everything else, we have determined that there are five key events that occur in any SAR, CSAR personnel recovery mission. I mention these because we're going to be talking about these tonight. When an event occurs, you have to have a report. Something has to trigger the system to do something. Number two, when you've got people down, you've got to locate them. Sounds simple. It's actually sometimes very complex. Thirdly, you've got to support the operation. You've got to support the people on the ground. You've got to have the wherewithal around you to do all the things necessary to get them out. Number four, you've got to be able to recover them, okay, with recovery vehicles. Normally, usually, that's going to be a helicopter, but not always. There are all kinds of ways to do all kinds of things, and we have done some of our more successful rescues using other means. That might be a ground team. It might be uh, uh, an armored force on the ground. It might be special forces. It might be some contract agents, people that don't even exist. And we can do these kind of things. And then lastly, when we bring them out, we bring them back home. Uh, we put them through a medical process, make sure they're okay, patch them up, whatever, and we return them. Uh, that's a very specialized area here. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but I am going to refer to these. And you'll see these play out because what, the reason that I wrote my book, the Re, uh, Combat Search and Rescue in Southeast Asia, is there at the agency, the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, where I've worked now off and on for the last 10 years, we realized about eight years ago we didn't have any good fundamental collection of historical data from Desert Storm. So I started doing that and then realized that, in essence, that was its own book and went ahead and got permission to go ahead and write that book out, and so that's why we've done that. So you're, uh, that's what you're going to see tonight. I'm going to talk a lot of, uh, of Desert Storm, but, of course, every war has its predecessors, and this mission area and all this has a rich heritage to it. It goes all the way back to Korea. Why Korea? 
because in Korea, it's when we first had usable helicopters, which gave us the ability to exploit the third dimension with an aircraft that could, at slower speeds, could go to a specific location, drop down, pick somebody up, and pull them out. Kind of hard to do with an F-86, okay? Couldn't get there from there. So we developed these helicopters to use them for rescue, and when we, when we started doing that, we realized that helicopters are vulnerable. They have to be protected. So we got to build a task force around them, okay? Uh, it helps if people can talk to each other. So we started giving our survivors survival radios. It all came from Korea. We took that and we applied it to Southeast Asia. And those of you who flew over there, you know, you remember how important search and rescue was. Beeper, beeper, come up voice if somebody was shot down. That was your first call. Get them talking, locate them, and, and get them out. And Earl Tilford, Earl Tilford wrote a very good book about all of that, about search and rescue in Southeast Asia. And he determined that we saved... We saved 3,883 people uh, with our rescue forces over there. Now, that's Air Force primarily. That does not necessarily include Navy. It does not include Marines or Army. They've never done their studies, so I can't tell you what the real numbers are. And some of the saves that Tilford has in there, uh, if you look at recovery records, those are rescues. Uh, guys shot down over the water, not necessarily CSAR, but just a, just a, a general recovery. Uh, those of you who might have been there in 1972 remember that when the North Vietnamese surrounded Quang Tree, we pulled 88 people out of the Quang Tree Citadel. Those numbers are in there, things like that. Okay, but back uh, it, later on in the 80s, there was a very focused study that was done by an outfit called Biotech, and they determined that by going back into Southeast Asia and looking at the rescue data through the prism of what we now call combat search and rescue. They determined that we had 778 guys, airmen, rescued, okay? And that's uh, Air Force, Army, uh, uh, Air Force, Navy, and some Marines, uh, basically uh, uh, fixed-wing type folks. And they also uh, noticed in, that in studying all of that data, that in the process of doing those rescues, we had 109 aircraft shot down doing the rescues. And we also had 76 guys killed or captured in the process of doing those rescues. And it reminded people that is, as, as much as we like to prosecute rescue, how, how good we feel about doing that, uh, what a morale factor that, that has for your troops, there's a cost to it, okay? And here's the cost. And so in later years, as we moved forward, the fighter pilots remembered this heritage of rescue. And I'll let you read that. In this picture here, is Roger Locker, if any of you remember those stories. I was standing about 10 feet, 10 feet behind the general when he was up there, and he was crying, man, General Vogt. It was a very, very powerful moment, okay? And the fighter guys, they remembered stories like Boxer 2-2 and Bat 2-1 and Oyster 0-1 and those kind of stories, the good, positive rescue stories. But the rescue guys themselves, they remembered something different. They remembered this. And they remembered the legend... <coughs> Of Jolly Green, 6-7, shot down here trying to get out Bat 2-1 Bravo in April 1972. There's the burning Jolly Green right there. This is what they remembered. And they remembered Maya Gez when so many of the helicopters were shot up and shot down. And they realized that in this world, there are places where helicopters can't go. And that's a fact. Okay, so the war's over. And, of course, just make a couple quick points here. You Southeast Asia guys, you recognize that beast up there, the venerable A-1. That was our primary... Uh, 
uh, Sandy Aircraft flight lead uh, to get uh, going, the rescue packages, and get our guys out. And uh, we used to uh, we used to kid the A1 guys. I was at NKP, and they were right next door to us. And we told them, we said, you know, if the North Vietnamese ever develop an oil-seeking missile, you guys are in big trouble. And they said, you're right. Because that thing used to leak. In fact, they, guys would go out to the airplane. If the airplane was not leaking oil, they wouldn't take it because there was something wrong with it. And, of course, the thing that made rescue work for us, all of us guys, when we flew, we, we carried uh, survival radios. And here, this is a URC-64 radio, four-channel radio, beacon and voice, very, very good, solid, dependable radio. And when I flew with those in Southeast Asia, I had two of them. And I had one buddy who was shot down, and one of his radios didn't work, and the fact that he had that secondary radio is how we got him out. And that's why we carried the extra one. We also carried extra batteries for that very reason, because these things would wear out. But after the war, we all came back, settled in. Air Force Rescue Forces, of course, they came back, and they were all assigned to the Air Rescue and Recovery Service back around the states. And they fell back into civil duties in a mission called MAST, where they were going out and they were basically being air ambulances for their local communities. They were doing all those kind of stuff, and they kind of forgot the war because the nation wanted to forget the war, okay? But they remembered one thing that was very obvious from their work in Southeast Asia, and it was the fact that we needed to have some kind of a night all-weather recovery system because sending in helicopters in the daytime was how you got them blown out of the sky. And we needed to do this at night. We needed to be able to do it in the weather. And the commander of the Military Airlift Command then that owned rescue, uh, General P.K. Carlton, he decided to, to do something about this, and he initiated a whole bunch of projects that put together a, uh, uh, various concepts and brought this together into a concept called Pave Low. And Pave Low would be a very massive modification of the HH-53 helicopters. We had the big recovery Jolly Greens to give them that day-night all-weather capability. And by 1980, we had eight rescue aircraft that had that capability. Very, very sophisticated, very, very sharp. But we did not, unfortunately, as we moved forward, we did not maintain a residual Sandy force like the A1s that we talked about. Uh, the A7s had the mission for a while, but the airplane was, was much faster than we were used to, had a lot of problems with that. We didn't train to it much. So our rescue knowledge was kind of whittling away, if you will. And then life intervenes. We have the Iran hostage crisis, and President Carter sends our forces in there to try to rescue those folks. And it was a tragic failure. And it was a failure primarily because we did not have the ability to transport our forces deep into enemy territory with a heavy helicopter force. So President Carter ordered a second operation. Not many people know this. It's just been recently declassified. And it was going to be called Honey Badger. Okay? And Honey Badger was going to be bigger, better, and bolder than the first plan. And one of the key environments, or one of the key uh, plus-ups in this plan was that they would reach down and grab those Pavlow uh, HH-53 helicopters that the rescue guys had been spending all that money on, and we would use them in this task force. Well, this was a special ops task force. So they took those helicopters from McClellan Air Force Base, they flew them down to Hurlburt and assigned them to the 20th SOS, the Green Hornets down there. Great uh, outfit. But the, uh, the operation never went, but the helicopters stayed down there, strangely enough. And then the Air Force decided that because of this, it was going to consolidate all of its rescue and soft forces, do a big transition, a big change. And so they created this monster called the 23rd Air Force out of McClellan Air Force Base under Military Airlift Command. And it would take control of all the rescue forces under ARRS, Air Rescue Recovery Service, 
and the 2nd Air Force Air Division, which was all the Air Force Soft Forces, and they felt that there would be a synergy of bringing these two forces together, economy of scale, economy of force, and all that kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, in creating this thing called 23rd Air Force, they would attach to it a whole bunch of disparate Mac pieces parts like weather squadrons and aerovac squadrons and stuff like this. And supposedly they was, this was all going to work. Unfortunately, they forgot one thing. There's a fundamental difference between what rescue guys do and what special operators do. The rescue guys are somewhat altruistic. They will say to you, hey, I'm not here to hurt anybody. I'm here to rescue my guys. That's a defensive mission. If you let me come in here and you don't bother me, I'm not going to fire my guns. I'm not going to bother you. Whereas the soft guys, a little bit different. They are in your face. Let's kill them. Let's go get them. They are snake eaters. They are offenders, whereas the rescuers are defenders. We try to bring these two community of people together. It did not work. It did not work. Big problems. Uh, we needed some new aircraft. So back starting in 1982, uh, we did get some money out of Congress for nine new MH-60 helicopters. The new helicopter coming along then, the Black Hawk, the MH means it's a special ops designation, but we'd have, we could also use those for rescue. And then we developed a plan, the air staff did, to buy 243 of these things and just use them all over for special ops and rescue and everything. <coughs> Unfortunately, though, that plan was canceled. But as part of the same plan, the Air Force also decided to take all of the HH-53s, HH means rescue, and modify those into paved low aircraft. And uh, by, by inference, slide them over into the soft community. Uh, and so when they started drawing down all the units with all the HH-53, the big jolly green helicopters, they started backfilling them with older H-3s left over from Southeast Asia. Not nearly as good a, a helicopter. Uh, but Congress then did get involved, and they passed a new law called the Goldwater and Snickles Law in 1986, which gave power to the combatant commander. And that meant that that command commander now in any theater could start organizing his forces any way he wanted. He could do anything he wanted to with his soft forces and his rescue forces. And some of them started combining them. The next year, they amended that law, and they created this monster called Special Operations Command, USACOM, there. And these are the snake eaters of today, great folks, all of them. And as one of their components, their Air Force component, would be this monster we call 23rd Air Force. We would sign them over there and make them the Air Force part of all of that. Okay? And one of their assigned missions would be something we were now calling TSAR. TSAR meant theater SAR. That meant that when you sent a force into a theater of operations, a soft slash rescue force, they had to be prepared to do both missions. So a new term. And that word TSAR is still banging around out there. But of all of their assigned missions, of their 13 assigned missions uh, uh, mandated by law, uh, TSAR was their 13th or last priority mission. Uh, okay, so we create this monster called 23rd Air Force, and then we move it down to Hurlburt, okay? Uh, and now it's part of SOCOM, Special Operations Command. Well, the commander of Special Operations Command is an Army four-star general, and he doesn't know anything about Military Airlift Command, Weather Squadrons, Aerovac Squadrons, and he's scared of all that. So he says, I want to get rid of all that stuff. I want to get rid of all that rescue stuff. Okay? So we come up with a new plan, and we're going to shove the old pieces parts from the ARRS back into MAC, rename them the Air Rescue Service, which is what they used to be a long time ago. We're going to shed all those pieces parts, and then in 1990, we're going to change this 
23rd Air Force designation to Air Force Special Operations uh, Command, or AFSOC, which it is to this day, commanded by a three-star general, currently uh, Major uh, Lieutenant General Donnie Worcester. Great guy. Okay, so they become AFSOC in 1990, and they take control of all of the MH-53 helicopters. So rescue is left with a bunch of old stuff. Rescue gets kicked back over to Air Rescue Service, which belongs to the airlifters again, MAC. And if you look at their uh, mission statements, though, they are assigned the worldwide CSAR mission. Okay? That's fact. Uh, but all they've got is H3s and UH1s to do it with, and so they realize we've got to start a rebuilding program real fast. So they get Congress to start buying them HH60s, and they'll start getting delivered about 1990, early 1990, okay? Now, so far, I've talked about the Air Force almost exclusively, and that is primarily because when you're talking rescue, more often than not, you're talking about the Air Force. But there are other services who have obligations to do rescue, too. During Southeast Asia, the Navy maintained in the Gulf out there a, a uh, couple of squadrons of rescue helicopters at various locations, and they, and they would be very responsive to guys going down over the north, or in some cases even down over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They would come in and get them. Uh, after the war, all of that capability was transferred into their reserve component, but they still had two what they call HCS squadrons, four and five, on each of the coasts, and they trained to this mission very, very hard, and they were very good at it. So they had that capability. But the Marine Corps in the Army now, what they did is they saw rescue as an internal tactical mission. They signed it to their tactical uh, commanders at the battalion level and expected everything to be taken care of at that level. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, and I'll show you some of that in a minute. <clears throat> okay, so pre-Desert Shield Desert Storm, which is where I'm going here, this is what we had. This recreation now called Air Rescue Service had the CSAR mission, and you can see it, but they had limited gear, but they were rebuilding. AFSOC, they had all the best combat recovery gear, but TSAR, is, as I mentioned here, that was a lower priority mission. But also within the AFSOC community amongst all those HH53, uh, MH-53 drivers was a whole body of experience. Guys who had flown in Southeast Asia, guys like Rich Comer and Benny O'Rell, uh, guys who had, had flown and, and done <coughs> tremendous rescue missions, Benny O'Rell, uh, rescued a marine uh, uh, a pilot from an A6 that was shot down over Chapone, or just east of Chapone, Bengal 505. This was in uh, April 1972. And he held the hover as the gunners tried to blow him out of the sky. He got an Air Force Cross for that mission. And he was part of this community now, and he instinctively knew what helicopters could and could not do. And he's over in the sock side of this now. And, uh, and as I pointed out here, uh, they, they, once the, mission, the Special Operations Command was stood up, they got real busy with all kinds of different missions. Uh, we were doing things in the Gulf. Back in 70, uh, 87, 88, we were doing things in the Gulf. And then, of course, Just Cause kicked off. We did that. And then uh, looking at the equipage issue, we, we had, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in Southeast Asia in the later years, we had the PRC, uh, URC-64 radio. We had turned all those in now for the PRC-90 radio, which is a radio of about the same capabilities, except it only had two channels, Vice 4, beeper and voice. So we're actually going downhill on that. But we're in the process now of introducing a new radio called the PRC-112, 
which is a five-channel radio, two channels programmable, and some discrete navigational capability built into the radio. So we're getting there, but there's very few of those out there. And we thought, wow, we've got uh, some new technology out there. Now, we've got some new satellites. We've got this new airplane called AWACS with that fancy radar on top. We've got this collector out there called Rivet Joint. And we've got this new system out there called Global Positioning System, GPS. And there ought to be a way we can use this to make all this work. So they felt very comfortable within the Air Force community that they had the ability now to very quickly locate our survivors listening to the radio beacons when they were shot down. Uh, they were a little bit too sanguine on that point. Okay, August 1990. Exactly, exact, exact, uh, let's see, I think it was actually the 2nd of August when he invaded. Things happen, and pretty soon it's time to go to war. General Schwarzkopf is notified that Kuwait has been invaded, and he's ordered to execute his war plan. Okay, so he could do that, and he starts doing it, and his people are doing their thing, and his planners are going through their tip-fid lists, if y'all remember that terminology and they're starting to determine what units are going to go over and there's a whole bunch of rescue units there that are designated to be to be deployed over to the war except they start spitting out of the computer as no fields because they've either been deactivated or they're like C4 for re-equipage okay so a message gets sent down to the air rescue service commander and he looks at all this and he looks at all of his H3 squadrons sitting out there and even though some of them are showing C-1, he decides, I ain't sending H-3s to this war. So he turns down the tasking. He says, my command will not play in this war. Now, there are people from that command to this day that are still upset about that. They didn't think that was the right answer for the commander of the Air Rescue Service to say, I'm sorry, but I'm not ready to go to war right now, so go on without us. Hmm. But he did deploy some personnel that did a lot of different things. One of the things that they did is he, they, some of the folks came over and they stood up the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, which is the theater center that, that, that set up the overall plan for the theater, and some augmentation to individual units. But they did not deploy any rescue units per se. Well, we need a rescue force for the war. So Special, Oper uh, Special Operations Command Component Central, SOCSENT, they're watching all this happen. They're taking uh, delivery now of the MH-53s with the 20th SOS and MH-60s from one of the squadrons over there. And they said, gosh, we got all these guys that know this mission. We got the helicopters, so we'll take the mission. And when that Army colonel said that, the Air Force colonels working for him were risking me in his ear, boss, saying, hey, boss, CSAR, Combat Search and Rescue. We can do the combat, we can do the rescue, but we're not going to do searches with our helicopters because that's how you get them shot down. He's going, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah, we'll sort all that out later. We'll take the mission, boss. So they got assigned the mission, okay? Except it's not quite that simple. Never is. Unfortunately, as all this is going on, General uh, 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 Chuck Horner is over there, and he is the Joint Forces Air Component Commander. He's the head airman for all of this. And according to his tasker list, one of his assigned tasks is to do CSAR for the theater. He's going to be the, the CSAR, the SAR coordinator for the entire theater. So he starts building this plan to be responsible for all this, and he stands up his Joint Rescue Coordination Center, as I mentioned there, and they're going to run this thing, and, and they're sitting right inside the Tactical Air Control Center, which runs the entire air war. So they got, they got contact with all the people they need to talk to to do one of these rescues. But interestingly enough, all the guys that were sent over there to do that were all SAR experts from places 
like Scott Air Force Base and Langley Air Force Base, and they could run a SAR for you just lickety-split. They, they could get aircraft out over the water and somebody's floating out there, somebody's lost on Mount Rainier. They could do that. But none of them had any combat experience. Hey, we'll learn as we go. Okay. And then, of course, all of the Allied components, all of the services, all the various components, when they would, when they would launch their recovery assets, they would maintain operational control of those assets. Very important point. So this is what we had. The, the USAF doesn't send any recovery assets over there to do that. So SOC sent the, the Special Operations Command Central component over there that owned the MH-53s and the MH-60s. They were going to do that cross-flot recovery. Flot is the forward line of troops. That's the front line. If you go beyond the flot, you're in enemy territory, okay? But what they signed up really to do was combat recovery, okay? Not combat search and rescue, that S-word. Gets bigger all the time. Now that's kind of confusing. Let me show you a wiring diagram so you can get it. Okay. Here you go. <clears throat> Here's the command and control for Desert Storm. When we sent our forces over there, we sent forces over there from each of the various services. Okay. Uh, now under the new Goldwater Nichols law, though, we would no longer fight just as services. We would fight as joint force components. Unfortunately, the law was still relatively so new by this time that we weren't prepared to do that. So when we sent them over there. All the Army guys were under one chain of control. The Navy guys were essentially under one chain of control. Same with the Marines. The Special Ops guys, and I use all the different colors here, they were a mixed collage from all the services, but they were under their own command and control. Okay? Now, General Horner over here, he's the Joint Forces Air Component Commander, which meant that he had control over a joint force. He had control of all the Air Force fighters. He could also have tactical control of assets from the Navy and the Marines, in some cases the Army, okay? But the other services didn't organize that way. They do that today. But this war was the animality. That's why Desert Storm is so important, because we're going through a huge paradigm shift here in command and control. So General Horner is in charge of the air war, and he has control of assets from other services. And he also, as the three-star over there, he's also the commander of Central Air Forces, which is an administrative position, and his, RC, his JRCC oversaw all of the RCCs for the various services, and the CENTAF RCC, Rescue Coordination Center, each of the components had one, was actually the same folks as right here. And when General Horner took responsibility for Theater CSAR, he had assigned to him all the assets that he needed to do the searching and the fighting and the supporting and all those kind of things. The only thing he didn't have were his recovery helicopters. He didn't own his recovery helicopters. They belonged over here to an Army colonel by the name of Jesse Johnson, who was a special ops guy, and he said, we'll do your combat recovery for you. And these guys up here were responsible for doing all the search kind of stuff. He has control of the, of the satellites. He has control of the AWACS and the rivet joints and all that, so it looked like it should work. Should's a big word. So that's what we've got. Is this confusing? I, yeah, I know it is, it, but it's very important to where I'm going here. Okay, so as we build up to get ready to go to war, we sent AFSA, or SOC sent Special Operations Command a lot of assets to do a lot of different things. They take command and control of a whole bunch of uh, Air Force uh, MH-53s, the Pavlos, a bunch of MH-60s, Blackhawks, some old MH-3s. We called up a reserve squadron from, uh, from uh, Davis-Monthan. And they had a bunch of old H-3s out there. They were special ops guys. 
and we decided that we, we needed to turn these into MH3s and make them capable of doing special ops. So we put a little gym, a Trimble GPS on them, and that made them an MH3 and sent those reservists off to war. They actually did a pretty good job, okay? And a whole bunch of PJs doing their thing. And, of course, the Navy component over there, they had assigned to them <coughs> a whole bunch of SH-60s and SEALs, and we'd be using those guys. And when the Army came over, they brought all their special forces, and they have a really outstanding organization at Fort Campbell called the 160th SOAR, the Night Stalkers, and they are badass, okay? And one of their squadrons, uh, well, well, I'm sorry, one of their battalions initially came over the 3rd of the 160th, and they were opcon to the Soxent, and they could do these missions if called upon to do it. And then later on, we had a plan to bring in to Turkey on the north side of the war a whole other task force of attack airplanes, and within that, they would have a task force, a special operations task force of MH-53s and tankers as a supporting force to do recoveries as necessary for the operation. Now, remember too, the special ops guys were there to do special ops stuff too. So they were being dual tasked, and there was a lot going on there. And when, Jenny, when Colonel Jesse Johnson, in talking to his airmen, did his war planning and everything and analysis, they said, okay, this is how we're going to do these cross-flot forward line of troops recovery missions. Before we send a helicopter anywhere, <coughs> we want a location on the survivor. We want a five-kilometer accurate grid on that guy. And the Air Force said, we can give you that. We can do that. Great. Secondly, we know that the enemy knows how these radios work. They will try to capture some of the radios, and they will try to bait us into doing false recovery so they can shoot us down. So we want to make sure that before we go there to try to do a rescue, we've authenticated that survivor. Prudence, okay? Uh, we want to do it through physical sighting or voice. And thirdly, before we send helicopters anywhere, we're going to do a threat assessment because the enemy's got lots of bad stuff out there. And there's places where our guys are not going to survive, especially in daytime. So we're going to do a threat assessment, okay? All very prudent stuff. And so they're going back and forth. Yeah, yeah, this sounds great. Just be there when we call. Okay. And, of course, here's some, some uh, shots here of what they had available to them. They, they had some of these guys. Uh, this is actually uh, a rescue helicopter, or a 60 here. But the MH-60s that the special ops guys are almost exactly the same. And, of course, the MH-53 Pavlos down here. And then you got these kind of guys, Army ODA Special Forces teams. They could do a recovery for you, okay? SEALs, using their fast boats. That could be your recovery vehicle, and we were prepared to do that. We had every, everybody spun up to do those kind of things and all kinds of plans, and we were ready to execute. Iraq at that time, two wars ago, was a, was a tough environment, both from the, uh, the physicalness of the country, uh, little vegetation, hard ground, very compliant population that would report location of our guys to the, to the, uh, to the government there, tough place to evade. And again, two wars ago, Iraq had a pretty tough set of air defenses there. We took that down. We took their MiGs down. We took their SAMs down. But they were good, and they were tough. And we had to worry about all that. And they had lots of radar-controlled guns, and they had lots of infrared missiles, and they had every every group of troops would have guns and so we had a lot to worry about and so our people did a lot of serious analysis of all that and the uh, loss expectations initially <coughs> the planners when they looked at all that and they ran the classic numbers just using attrition rates and everything they thought that over the air campaign it was as it was then planned we'd lose 300 aircraft fixed-wing aircraft that's just fixed-wing not talking helicopters that's a lot uh, when uh, when Horner 
did his analysis. Uh, initially, the, uh, the, the only aircraft that he had guaranteed to him were, were a U.S. Air Force. He thought we'd lose 42. John Warden, Colonel John Warden, when he did his analysis of the war, if any of you know him, really smart guy, he thought that we'd lose about 15 the first night and then things would drop off and we'd lose about 40 aircraft overall. Now here's what, a data point that really got everybody's attention. When the Iraqis invaded Kuwait on the 2nd of August, the Kuwaitis had a very advanced, very sophisticated air defense system. And in the few hours that they fought and had the ability to fight, they shot down 39 Iraqi aircraft with their Rolands and their radar-controlled guns, and it showed how dangerous and, and serious modern air defense weapons could be, unless you're an Israeli and then you can get through anything like last week in Syria. I'd like to, I'd like to see the briefing on that one. Uh, <clears throat> so the Soxent guys who were on the hook to do the recoveries they expected that first night in particular that it was going to be raining parachutes. I heard that phrase several times from the guys. It's going to be raining parachutes. So they were ready to go. Uh, rescue expectations. We wanted to go get rescue our guys. And, and uh, the young Brigadier General Buster Glossen, who was running the air war, he was the guy in charge. He had a rather cavalier attitude about rescue. And he went around a lot of the different units, and he talked to the guys. And thinking back to his experiences in Southeast Asia, he just inherently knew that the rescue guys were going to be here. So he said this, and this is a direct quote. And I called him back and I said, you really said this. And he said, I said it and I'll stand by it. So those are his words. Now the Sox, the Sox sent briefers, young guys like Kenny, uh, Captain Randy O'Boyle and, and guys like that, they were going around and they were talking to the guys much more soberly and saying, look, dudes, you get in trouble. Our preference is to come at night. Why? Because better survivability for our helicopters, okay? Uh, here's some techniques, here's some procedures, here's some things you need to know that you might see us do out there. But there's n there are not going to be any more BAT-2-1s and big rescues where we send in 5,000 sorties to try to get a guy out because we don't have those kind of numbers anymore. So we got a little bit of a disconnect starting here. In fact, one of the specific units that Buster Glossen went to was the 4th TAC fighter wing, the 4th uh, fighter, yeah, fighter wing still then. And they were the guys who were flying the brand new F-15Es, uh, the Mud Eagles, that were going to be heavily involved in action. And you're going to hear more about them in just a minute. So we got kind of a split message here, and it kind of goes back to that split heritage that came from Southeast Asia. So it's time to go to war. Uh, the, the political stuff doesn't work. We can't get it together. The politicians don't want to make it happen. And so it's time to, to put it on the ground. And, and uh, the first week, we had helicopters on alert over here at Arar, at Al Juf, at Rafa, Hafer al Batin, and over here at Rosh al Mashab. There was, a, there was a barge over here at Rosh al Mashab, and they took the guys from the 71st Squadron, the reserve guys from Davis Monthan with the H-3s. Those were the only helicopters we had in the theater could land in the water. So they said, so why don't we put them over by the water? That makes sense. And of course, then they got over there, the SEALs found them, and they loved them because then they were using them for their missions back and forth. But they were on alert there. And we had all those helicopters along there. And the first night, we had 42 helicopters on alert, ready to go if somebody got shot down. The first night, uh, the plan was, or the first week or so, the plan was that we were going to go and we were, gonna, we were going to mount a strategic campaign to essentially take down the country, take down their command and control, try to kill their leaders, uh, <clears throat> do strategic damage to the nation to weaken it so we could then go in and, and not have to expend as much blood uh, destroying their military 
in, in freeing Kuwait. <clears throat> and, and that was initially the way it started out. And of course, some of our lead weapons were cruise missiles, using those, uh, and, and our stealth weapons, our 117s. But another tactic that we used, we knew that all along the border here, they had a series of uh, early warning surveillance radars. <clears throat> so we put together a plan to send up, some, send up some helicopters at night to blow out two radars right here to blow a hole so that the rest of our airplanes can then come ripping through there you know, and get a jump on the bad guys and then spread out and, and do their thing. And the way we put this operation together was very, really very simple and fairly ingenious. We went to a young lieutenant colonel in the Army by the name of Dick Cody, and we grabbed some of his Apache attack helicopters, uh, six of them actually, put them together in teams of three, and each team of three would take out one of those radar sites. Uh, unfortunately, though, there was a problem. At that time, the Apache uh, attack helicopter didn't have a very good navigational system on it. It had a system called Doppler, Doppler shift uh, system. And this thing would drift away on you, and it would very quickly become inaccurate. So they had to be precisely navigated. So what they decided to do was they called down to the 20th Special Operations Squadron and said, could you send up some of your Pavlos to lead these guys in to do this strike? Yeah. So. Lieutenant Colonel Rich Comer, who was the commander, put together this little package, and that night when it was time to go, they took off and led those helicopters up there, and they, and they flew right to a specific, known, predetermined point, and as the Pavlos flew over that using their GPS guidance system, they threw out a whole bunch of chem sticks, okay, and then the Apaches would come along behind them, and they would fly over there, and they would update their Dopplers, and their Dopplers are going to be good for 10, 15 minutes now, and then they flew very precise tracks to the radars, went to their whole point, and exactly on the second popped up and launched a barrage of all these missiles and hit these guys in these radar sites before they even knew they were there, took them out, blew that hole in the, uh, in the uh, uh, early defense system there, and then the helicopters that were involved, the Pavlos and some Navy uh, H-860s that were out there with them, then they just started doing orbits waiting for a seesaw event. And one of the guys told me, and said that when that happened, uh, the timing was very precise. They watched the radar sites blow up, and he says, I turned back to the south, and I saw coming at me in the sky just a wall of airplanes, and all their beacons and everything were on, and they were flashing and everything, and then they got right about here, and all of a sudden, all the lights went off, and then all you could see was a wisp of contrails as they started dropping down from altitude uh, and then dispersing out into Iraq, and then within a few minutes, bombs going off everywhere and doing their thing, and it was uh, quite an operation. Uh, <clears throat> that first week... As John Warden had predicated, we took quite a number of losses. And I'm, I'm going to talk about two of them specifically in just a minute, but let me give you a, a bigger sweep here. Initially, as we went in, uh, the Brits launched their tornadoes. Now, their tornadoes were carrying a device called the JP-233, I think it was, a specifically designed weapon to blow up runways. And what they had to do is they had to fly straight and level at a predetermined speed right over airfields. Not really smart if it's a highly defended airfield. But the Brits wanted to do it. Thank you, guys. Do it. Go for it. And so they went in there, and they started bombing these airfields, and they started getting their airplanes blown out of the sky, and we start dumping these guys left and right. Uh, we lose uh, Newport 1-5 here and Norwich 0-2 uh, there, uh, Stanford 0-1 up here. And uh, this is obviously very dangerous business. And, of course, the, the first night, too, we lost an Italian uh, Tornado down here, uh, uh, Caesar 4-4 went down there, and uh, 
the next couple of nights, we, we continue to run uh, missions. We lose an F-15E right here, uh, Thunderbird uh, 56 right there. And uh, the second night, we lose right here, we lose an A-6, okay, quicksand 1-2, off of the United States Saratoga. Uh, the guys go in there, they make a run on the airfield, low altitude, roll-on missile, tracks them, fires a missile, hits the right side of the nose, blows the airplane out of the sky, the two guys jettison out of the airplane. They're floating to the ground. The bomb nav, as he's floating to the ground, he understands the importance of contacting rescue forces. He pulls out his PRC-90 radio that he had and somehow lost it into the night. He dropped it or something, and it was gone. So he lands on the ground, and he finds his pilot. His pilot's wounded, and, 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 and his, his shoulder's hurt, and so he helps him take off his survival vest to, to relieve the pain on there. And, of course, these guys are a little panicky and everything, and they can see that they're only just a couple miles from this H3 airfield over here, which is really a bad place, and so they need to move away from there. So the bomb nav says, come on, we got to get out of here, let's move. And so they start moving off what they think is the south, and they're navigating by the stars, and then finally they get away from the field, and he goes, I lost my survivor radio. Give me your survivor radio. He goes, uh, my survivor it was in my vest. Where's your vest? So now we got two guys in the desert. Neither one has a radio, okay? Uh, needless to say, uh, we did not get there before the enemy picked those guys up. Uh, very, very, very sad story. Uh, we lost an F-16 right here, stroke 6-5. Guy got smacked by a SAM. He punches out, floats to the ground, uh, fairly quickly becomes guests of local Bedouins in the area. We don't know that. We actually launch payloads out of Rafa. They go up there. They run search patterns looking for this guy. They can never make contact with him. He's already a guest of the locals. But we prove that we can get those helicopters. It was a real foggy day. They went in in the fog in the daytime and ran these search patterns, didn't find the guy, but the guy afterwards, when we brought him back, he, he talked about, he could hear the helicopters flying over. He knew they were out there. But it taught the payload guys that they could operate enemy territory. Uh, very important lesson. Uh, <clears throat> we lost a, uh, a Marine uh, OV-10 down here, left over from the Southeast Asia days. They were uh, doing a mission with the, uh, <clears throat> with the uh, Marines in that area. They got a little bit too far forward. Uh, they got shot down, and I believe both guys were captured on that one uh, fairly quickly. Uh, we lost a Kuwaiti A-4, Brigon 2-3, was uh, shot down about the second, third day, something like that. The guy gets on the ground. We know he's down there. We've got contact with him, and then he says, basically, I've, been, uh, I've, I've rendezvoused with some locals, and he, and, he, and he got picked up by some Kuwaiti partisans. And then he joined with them and fought with them for a couple more weeks before that whole group was then picked up, and then he became a POW. So we're not, we're not doing very good on our rescues. Uh, <clears throat> on the first night, another guy, CLAP-7-4, was an F-16, shot down right over Baghdad right here. And uh, as he punched out and floated to the ground, they were waiting for him. He had an arrival party right there, so he went right to the slammer. Uh, the first night, though, uh, we launched all the missions. Everything was pretty successful and all the aircraft were reported, recovered aboard the ship. We found out that that wasn't exactly the case. We were missing somebody, Navy Lieutenant Commander Michael Spiker. Uh, a couple hours later, they do a head check there. Hey, anybody seen Spiker? I don't know. I don't, I, where was he? Well, last night, well, I saw him over here, and I think this and that and everything else. And even though a message was sent, he was, he was from the Saratoga, okay? Even though a message had been sent off the Saratoga that everybody had been successfully recovered, later on we find out that Spiker's missing. Okay, 
Uh, anybody get a report from Spiker? No, I didn't hear nothing. I didn't hear anything. Did anybody see anything? Well, you know, last night we were in this battle and running gun, and, and I saw an explosion, and I think it was right about out over here southwest of Alcoot. So that became Spiker's reported location, somewhere southwest of Alcoot. But we had no radar, radio contact with the guy, no signals, nothing. And uh, we never found Michael Spiker, obviously. Uh, and throughout the war, we continued to listen for him. We asked for him. Uh, uh, the next day, the government quickly changed their story. We do have somebody missing, and we've been looking for him ever since. Uh, when I was doing my research, though, I, I, I discovered some interesting stuff about Spiker. Now, I don't know what happened to him. I'm a seesaw guy. I'm not a seer survival specialist kind of guy. But So I study this from the perspective of why wasn't there a seesaw? Well, again, step number one is you need that report. We had helicopters sitting on alert that night all along there that could have been called out to go and get him. But they had to know where. They had to get the call. Okay, The report never came in. Well, Spiker had launched with a PRC-112 radio, okay, pretty good radio. But there was a problem on the Saratoga. The Saratoga, Saratoga Air Wing, out the, the Saratoga was out here in the Red Sea, out to the southwest out here. When they trained up for the war, they had trained with PRC-90 survival radios. That's what they were prepared to go to war with. Well, the afternoon before the first strike, literally within a couple hours of launching the first strike, the COD delivery aircraft comes aboard the, the, uh, the carrier lands, throws off this box, and they open it up, and here's a whole bunch of brand new PRC-112 radios. Hey, these are better radios. These are better survival radios. Well, let's use these. Oh, okay. Where's the instructions? Uh, well, I don't see them, but it's a better radio. Well, are there any extra batteries? Well, no, but here. Well, how many do we have? Well, we only have enough for one guy in each family model airplane, like the A6 and the F-14. So all the single-seat guys will get one, and one of the two guys in the other airplanes. And I mentioned in the A6, the Navigator had the uh, PRC-90, the pilot had a PRC-112. Didn't do either one of them any good. Okay? So Spiker was issued a PRC-112. Well, they're giving these guys the radios, and as they're getting ready to go, literally, they got their survival vests on, and they notice that the PRC-112 is a different shape of radio, physically different than the PRC-90. And the pouch that had been built on the survival vest was fitted for a PRC-90, and the 112 would not fit in there. So a lot of these guys said, just give it to me. And they got in the airplane, and they stuck it down in there, kind of crammed it in, and noticed about halfway through the mission that it was laying over on the console over here. Uh, some guys noticed, too, that that early model PRC-112 had a real finicky on-off switch. And if you put it the wrong way, it would bump up against your rib cage and burn out the battery. Several guys came home with dead batteries. Hmm, interesting. Okay, we never got any call out of Spiker. We never got any contact whatsoever. Did he lose his radio? Did his radio fail? I don't know, again. But I suspect something like that possibly happened. Several years later, though, we did get a recovery team into his crash site, okay? It had been misreported. His airplane had actually crashed right up here. He was part of the air wing, and they were attacking the El Takadam airfield right here, which we now own and use on a daily basis. And his aircraft was shot down right there. Uh, <clears throat> photo reconnaissance saw this. Now, just coincidentally, <clears throat> I learned this from another source, open source, uh, a couple days later, the British brought over their special forces teams, their SAS guys. And one night, they put in three teams, Bravo 1-0, Bravo 2-0, Bravo 3-0. 
One zero and three zero aborted and did not go in. Bravo two zero inserted, and guess where they inserted? Supposedly right on his grid. Now why would that be? I don't know. British should never tell me, okay? I do know, though, that according to what is an open source, their cover story was that they were a seesaw recovery team. Anyway, several years later, we get a recovery team into Spiker's site, and they find his wreckage. They notice that it's also been tampered with, and they find his canopy, and they find all kinds of things, and they also recover the little computer memory bank inside the aircraft that monitors the status of the aircraft. It had an auto-reporting status, found out that Spiker's aircraft was failing. Things were going wrong with his airplane. At one point, he lost an electric bus, one of his electrical buses, and he lost his radar warning receiver. Now, he's 200 miles in enemy territory with an air battle going on all around him, and he loses his radar warning receiver, so he can't tell when radars are looking at him. And guys in his group are shooting down MiGs, or what they thought were MiGs. Um, <clears throat> so he's up there. His radar warning receiver goes out. Then his IFF system goes out so he cannot squawk his identity to other friendly aircraft. So he was basically up there as a flying piece of iron, okay? But he was mission-oriented. He wanted to do it. So he hung on, and something happened to him, and he got shot down. And that's, that's all I know about Michael Spiker. But if we had had the ability to get out that first report, it could have possibly changed this whole thing because the assets were there, available, listening, looking, and the recovery forces were available to try the mission if there had been a mission. That's why that report is so important. So we use Spiker now to make that historical point. Okay, another very controversial mission. About the third night of the war now, uh, Saddam had realized that, man, this strategic air campaign, I don't like this at all. I need to do something. So he decides to drag Israel into the war. And how does he do that? By launching Scud missiles from out here. So when he does that, Israel says, we're coming in. And it took direct intervention of President Bush to their national leader to shut those guys down. How close were they? I talked to an Israeli F-16 pilot that was in that. He said, we were number one for takeoff, man. And I said, were you going to hit the Scud sites? He said, the hell with the Scud sites. We were going right over there, Baghdad. They were going downtown. And they would have done it. Well, that would have been chaos. So we got them to... To, to, President Bush got them to, to, to stand down, and then he essentially called over to Schwarzkopf and said, fix this problem. So that very carefully orchestrated air campaign plan that we had got thrown in the trash can, and it was, you guys get in your airplanes and go out into the West. And all the F-15E guys were priority to do that because they had the best system to go and do this. And so they're literally told to just get out there, grab a, a, an available jet, get airborne, and go. And as they were walking to the airplane, literally, they were being handed possible target photos and uh, 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 coordinates for attack sites. It was all chaos, helter-skelter. And they had one more airplane available, and there were only two more pilots left in the entire wing who were available to fly, the wing commander and the old director of operations. Uh, and they flipped a coin. And I don't know how the coin went, but the D.O. flew, okay? So he goes running out there. Now, he hadn't flown much. He wasn't mission ready. He was mission capable in the airplane because it's the D.O. bringing his wing over to Saudi Arabia. He didn't have time to fly. So he wasn't really, like, totally up to speed on the airplane. So they assigned him a real strong navigator, or a whistle on the back seat, a guy named Tom Griffith. Uh, the Colonel Dave Eberly was the guy's name. So they go out there. They strap on their jet, and about the time they level off, Dave starts catching up with the airplane, 
and they go roaring into the area up there and they start doing their thing and the F-15E was so new, so sophisticated that it had its own built-in electronic jamming suite, okay? Really nice system. Uh, but they decided that to, to save memory space and everything that they would eliminate some of the older threats like the old SA-2s and stuff. Well, they had some old SA-2s out there. And one of them launched on these guys and blew them out of the sky. Okay, brand new F-15E. So they jettisoned out of the jet. They float to the ground. They're kind of busted up a little bit, but they get together. They get out their PRC-90 radios. They start talking. And now we know we got survivors on the ground. And so the soft guys, they're down here. They're waiting for the call to go. And what's the first thing they ask? Where are these guys? Well, instead of giving them a nice, tight, little five-kilometer circle so they can go in at night, stay low, and do their thing, uh, Big Blue Air Force is coming back with, like, 60 and 70-kilometer circles, big, big search areas, you know, for these guys. And the soft guys are saying, well, wait a minute. You, you're going to give us, well, look, we're doing the best we can now. You guys need to get airborne and go pick up those guys. And they're going, well, we don't really know where they are. And then it got real ugly from then, and, we, and then some people started accusing the soft guys of lacking certain vital male body parts and things like this. It got real ugly back and forth. And the problem was, you didn't know where these guys were. They just knew that they were out here. And oh, by the way, this is one of the most dangerous areas in the entire country over there, okay? So as we're trying to sort all of this out, uh, as I mentioned, we had also brought in a task force proven force from Europe and they were attacking Iraq from up in the north here, and they had within, within them, they also had some, some rescue helicopters, some paved lows. So we actually had two options for trying to get these guys out. We could come from the south or the north. And we had essentially divided the country right across here at the 33, uh, 30 north line, and essentially uh, if a survivor was north of that, we'd launch the guys from Turkey. If he was south, we'd launch out of Saudi Arabia. So all the young lieutenants and the captains down here and all these units they're in the door. They're ready to go. They want to do the mission, right? Uh, but their 05s and their 06s, the guys like Benny O'Rell are saying, wait a minute, Air Force, where are these guys? We're not going to do the search. Where are these guys? And it got real ugly, very acrimonious, because guys are flying through the area, strike packages and everything, and they're talking to these guys on the ground. And they can't understand why their buddies are not being because they can hear them down there, Okay though they didn't have the security clearances to know what the soft guys were doing and were not doing, so it became a huge, huge problem. And to this day, this rancor between the two communities still exists over this incident. It's a very, very famous or infamous incident, Corvette 03. And uh, <clears throat> finally, after about two days of this, the head Air Force 06 and AFSOC, a guy by the name of George Gray, who had been the wing commander at Hurlburt, he went to the intel guys and he said, give me the best grid you've got on these guys because we're going. We're going to go. I can't take this anymore. So they come up with a grid. And when he plots it, it's north of the 3330 line. Okay, being prudent, he passes it to the guys up in Turkey. You've got the mission. Great. These guys are the guys from England and they're flying to Pavlos again. And so they start planning the mission. <clears throat> now, when they had done their pre-war planning, they had realized that for them to fly out of Turkey over to the little town of Zako, turn the corner and fly down this was too much, much too dangerous. So what they needed was they needed access through Syria, just like this, okay? So they had already gone to their senior officers many days before and requested on-call immediate clearance through Syrian airspace to do recoveries in the western portion of the country. And the answer was standby, okay? 
So that night, they're ready to go. They're locked and cocked. They're organized, and they start engine. Taxi for takeoff, stand by. Ready for takeoff, stand by. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they never get clearance to fly through Syria, so they have to cancel the mission. Okay. We know the guys are out there. We hear them. We know they're, they're talking on the radios. We know they're moving around out there. We've got other agencies involved. They're trying to bring in other people who do other, do other kind of weird things and wear weird costumes and all kinds of stuff because and, and, we want to get these guys out. And uh, <clears throat> the next night, the guys in Turkey, they say, we don't care what they tell us. We're going. It's going to happen. And they got with the air planners, General uh, uh, Buster Glossin and his guys, and Glossin said, look, this is what I'm going to do for you. We want to get those guys out too. So I'm going to send in a big strike package, a couple dozen fighters. We're going to roll in. They're going to roll in. They're going to hit every gun that they know around there. They're going to maintain a cap over you. The flight lead is going to contact these survivors, have them up on the radio. So all you guys got to do is slip right in there and pick those guys up and get out of Dodge. Great plan. And, and so what the soft guys would do was they, they would fly down and they would orbit right there. And as soon as they had the survivors on the radio and they had voice contact, they then had authorization to cross the border, fly in, and pick these guys up, get out of Dodge, and everybody would be happy. Okay, so the next night, it's time to go. They taxi, stand by. They get ready to take off. Uh, stand by. Stand by for your clearance through Syria. They said to hell with it. They just took off. We're going. And they were 20 minutes into Syria when they got a SATCOM call. Be advised, you are authorized now to fly through Syria. Thank you very much. Here we go. So here we have an, an, M8, an MC-130 tanker and two Pavlos flying through the night. They get down about in this area here. They do a quick tanker a top off. The tanker pulls out back up here to the north. And as they're right down about here, they notice that an SA-6 radar site is tracking them from their right. They get a little bit lower, avoid that. They get down into their holding position, and they're in position when all of a sudden they look up, and here comes all these Air Force fighters, and they all roll in. They make one pass. Flight lead says, uh, Corvette 03, how do you read? Corvette 03, how do you read? We're out of here. And they're gone. It gets real quiet. And now here we have two Pavlos in the orbit right there. And their instructions are, you don't cross the border without voice contact. Well, they don't know it, but the guys have already been captured. We don't know exactly how much before this they got captured, but they're on the way to Baghdad, okay? So here's these soft crews, right? Uh, they had, I think they had six crew members on each aircraft, and then they had some Army Bubba's on there for a possible ground contingency, so maybe 10 guys in each aircraft. And here they are, and they're out there, and the young aircraft commander who's in charge of all of this, Captain Steve Otto, turns to his co-pilot and turns to his guys and says, guys, what do you think? And he said, hey, the rules are we can't cross the border without voice contact, but you know what? We're here. So they check with the guys on the other helicopter. What do you think? We're here. Let's go. Let's do it. So they violate the hell out of their ROE and their instructions, and they fly into, Syria, into Iraq, and for 32 minutes, contrary to their orders, they troll around this area, and they call on both frequencies in the PRC-90, 2430 and 2828, and every time they key the mic, the sky lights up with bullets because the enemy knows how these radios work. They're listening to them, okay? And they know that these guys are out there. They can hear them flying around up there. They just can't see them. Cover of night. 32 minutes. They troll around out there looking for those guys. Calling, calling, calling. No contact. Finally, they re realize the inevitable. They pull out. They fly back up to Turkey, land, start planning for the next night's mission when during the day we find out that these guys 
had been picked up by the bad guys and were now POWs, okay? Uh, very, very ugly incident, very, very huge disconnect. To this day, lots of bickering between the Air Force rescue guys and the soft guys about the soft failure to get their buddies. Uh, caused a big morale problem. Uh, <clears throat> and it all goes back, though, to location problems and the expectations that were built up by the commanders over there at the time. Very, very famous incident. Okay, uh, a couple days later, we lose, uh, the Navy gets in the act. We've got an F-14 from the USS Saratoga. Boy, we're on a streak here with the Saratoga. They're up there, they're part of a package, they're doing their thing. Uh, they get tracked, locked up, and shot at by an SA-2. Blows them out of the sky. The guys jettison out of the airplane, float to the ground. The pilot, Devin Jones, is on the ground. He's got a PRC-90. His backseater, Larry Slade, has got a PRC-112. They do get out a couple radio calls. We know pretty much where they are. <coughs> and we're going to go rescue these guys. Well, when the report came in, the report initially came in that not only an F-14 had gone down, but also an A-6. Hmm. So we decided to send two rescue packages out to get these guys. So they call down to a RAR to the guys that are sitting there on alert, and they're ready to go. And we've got MH-53 sitting there from the 20th SOS. We've got MH-60 Pavehawks sitting there from the 55th SOS. And we've got a bunch of Navy SH-60s from the uh, uh, HCS-4 and 5 that had been on the boats but had been brought forward to do rescue operations. And they all wanted to go, okay? Well, <clears throat> first up for this mission was actually the Navy guys. But unfortunately, when they looked out the door, the visibility was about two feet with ground fog. I mean, really, really thick stuff. And neither they or the other 60s could get airborne in that, so... The only aircraft that could launch in that weather condition were the Pavlos. So the Pavlos take off, and about the time they get airborne, they realize that the A-6 has, already, has just recently recovered down at Aljuf. It's all badly shot up, but it's on the ground safely, so we don't need both helicopters. So they tell one of the guys to go back and land. Michael Kingsley was the aircraft commander. The other aircraft takes off under the command of Captain Tommy Trask. Anybody know him? Anyway... Uh, <clears throat> So he gets airborne, and he's heading up north. And as he's heading through there, he's, he's hiding underneath the, the, the low-vis conditions and everything. And all of a sudden, he pops out, and it's clear at a million, and it's flat as it can be, with just a little, little bit of swale on the ground there. And they call him and say, be careful, there's enemy helicopters airborne. Oh, this is going to be interesting. They never see those guys. Then they're told enemy fighters are coming after them. They never see those guys. They vector some F-15s in, clear these guys out. <coughs> in... Uh, in the meantime, they have, in, 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 Larry Slade had a PRC-112. PRC-112 has a, a little code that you put in it called a PLS code. It's a discrete code, and he had, Tommy Trask had on his helicopter a little receiver that if you plug that PLS code into it, you can interrogate that radio and get very precise guidance right to it. And they had the code for Larry Slade, but they never made radio contact with him. Larry Slade would never tell us why. But he was subsequently picked up and became a POW. Okay, well, we don't know about Jones. We're getting intermittent signals on him. They go up there, they drive around, and the rule was that they were not supposed to cross this road because this road is roughly the 33 North 30 line right there. So they went up to about that road, and they can't find the guy, and they go to the coordinates they've been given. He's not there. And so they start heading back. In the meantime, we divert some A-10s in there. Uh, what we call Sandy Qualified A-10s. We'd start training those guys again for that mission. They go in there, and they start searching for, for these guys. And Trask gets back, 
He lands at Arar. He's taking on gas. His orders are now to, to take off and go back to their main base at Al Juf and get some repairs on the airplane. And they're just sitting there monitoring the radio, and all of a sudden they hear the, uh, the A-10 flight lead, uh, Captain P.J. Johnson, he's talking to the survivor. Holy cow, we've got a live one. So they top off their gas, take off, and they start heading north again, and <clears throat> they want to make contact with that A-10, and they want to find out where this survivor is. So they make contact with P.J., and he says, I got, I got a good location on the survivor. Because what he had done, he had done DF steers on the guy's radio, flew over his position, kicked out a flare, and Devin Jones says, you're right above me. So he, holds, he hits the hold button on his inertial navigation system, writes down the coordinates, and now he has a set of coordinates for the survivor. He has a set of coordinates, okay? I didn't say location. I said a, a set of coordinates. And I say that because he'd been flying now for about four and a half hours. INS has had a bad habit of kind of drifting away, kind of doing their own thing. But they've got it locked in their box. So his INS knows where the survivor is. Great. Somebody knows. Something knows. But he's got a problem now. He's out of gas. So he's got to go find a tanker. So he's heading south. Trask is heading north. What is Trask asking? Give me the grids. Okay. So he reads him out the grids on, on secure frequency and everything. And Tom programs those into his GPS. Okay. Very precise. Goes where it's told to go. And PJ goes down, gets a full bag of gas, and he's heading back up. Tommy Trask flies right to that set of coordinates. And when he's about four miles away from those coordinates, he notices right in front of him on his radar warning receiver that there's a Roland battery right there, exactly on those coordinates, and it's trying to track him. That's not good. Roland's a very, very dangerous surface-to-air missile site. <clears throat> very bad against payblows. Okay, I don't think the survivor's there. If he is, we've got a bigger problem. So Tommy kind of slides off to the east here, gets away from him, and he notices that the, those coordinates have taken him north of this road. Mm. Well, the rules are, if it's north of the road, he's supposed to back off and let the guys from Turkey do it. No, we're here. We're going, man. So they cross the road. They're up there doing their thing. And now he's got a problem because <clears throat> he doesn't know where this guy is. So PJ comes back up, flies right to where the box tells him to go, and it's right over the survivor. Great. Now he's got to get Trask locked up with him. So they use ADF steers, the old simple method, follow the arrow, to do a rendezvous. He gets him over to the survivor, and he comes flying in there to pick him up. <clears throat> and by this time now, the young Navy lieutenant, Devin Jones, realizes that things are happening. So he's getting real talkative on the radio. Now the enemy, they were very smart. They had teams out in trucks with radar or with radio receivers, tracking uh, gear, and they would listen for signals like this, and they would home in on them. And one of these teams was not very far away, and here's the A-10s flying over the, the, the survivor, and here's the helicopters coming in, and they're coming in to where, about where they think the survivor is, and all of a sudden the co-pilot in the helicopter looks up, and here's two bad guy trucks coming this way. So they call it out to the A-10 guys. Hey, take care of those trucks. A-10s can do that. A-10s can take care of trucks. So the flight lead, <coughs> he's slightly out of position. So he rolls in, and he makes a shot. He doesn't hit him, but he makes the truck stop. And then the wingman rolls in and puts about 350 rounds of 30 millimeter all over this truck, man. And the truck just kind of like went away, okay? The other truck went, got it, got the signal, and they left, okay? <coughs> so... I used to fly A-10s, and I know how powerful that gun is. And so I asked this kid, I said, why did you fire 350 rounds of 30 millimeter onto one truck? And he said, 
because that's all I had. <laughs> okay, okay. So he protects the survivor. Helicopter comes in and lands, flares, does its thing, and then Devin had been kind of laying down a little hole in the ground, kind of covered off, and so he pops up. They got him to throw his ass on board, and they get the hell out of Dodge. Successful rescue. And again, another shot. This is the same picture now. It's out there all over the world, and, uh, and, and this was the actual helicopter that they flew in the operation. <clears throat> okay, week two. Uh, the campaign goes on, but now General Schwarzkopf decides that He's getting tired of this strategic campaign stuff. His real worry is down here on the bad guys in Kuwait, so he wants to start focusing the operation down here more on the Kuwait down here, so more of the airplanes are flying down here doing their thing, and you can see this is where the losses are continuing to occur. We, we lose another British uh, tornado over here, and finally, when this one goes down, the Brits kind of get the message that maybe we need to stop this stuff. You know, it's not working, or we don't need to bust any more airfields. Uh, uh, we, we were losing a lot of those guys. In fact, I, I talked to one crew. Uh, they they uh, actually ran a mission against uh, Talil right here, and they were shot down right over the airfield. And, and, and uh, I asked the backseater, I said, when you, when you got on the ground, were you able to get out your survival ready and make contact with rescue forces? He says, man, I landed in the truck. He said, I, in three minutes, I was in the base commander's office. And I... At home, I have a picture of his ejection seat sitting right in front of the base commander's office, right there. Anyway, but we're losing more airplanes. Uh, we lose a Saudi uh, F-5 over here. Don't really know what happened there. We lost an, F an EF-111 here one night. Now, he was up there on a jamming pattern, and he thought he was being tracked by, a, by a, an enemy MiG, and he did a, a split S, got disoriented, and we estimate that he hit the ground at about 1,000 miles an hour. wasn't pretty wasn't pretty. Over here in the battle, uh, we lose another A-6 here. It went down doing low-altitude operations. Uh, the Marines now have unleashed their AV-8s. We lose a couple of those guys. Jump 5-1, Cat 5-6. One guy was rescued, or uh, I'm sorry, one guy was picked up by the bad guys. One guy was killed. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, right here, Spirit 03 was an AC-130 up at night attacking enemy positions right along here, preparatory to a, a battle that became known as the Battle of Kafji, if you know the story, the history of the war. They got in there, they stayed a little bit too long into the sunrise, became silhouetted up there, were blown out of the sky, uh, in all, I think there were 15 guys on board. They, uh, the airplane broke in half, if you will, and fell out of the sky, and they were all killed. Uh, we got rescue forces in there, uh, and they were, they were actually in the water, and we were able to recover all of their bodies. But it just showed you that even the big monster AC-130 gunships could be vulnerable in a situation like that. We had to rethink some of our procedures. <clears throat> okay, week five. Uh, again, the focus now is more down here into the southeast. We lose another British tornado, but he was on basically a conventional mission up here. Uh, the Brits never believed in spending a lot of money on electronic warfare stuff. And so this guy was doing a medium-altitude mission up there uh, and was blown out of the sky by an SA-2. Okay? Those things happen. Uh, and we start losing some A-10s. We had lost an A-10 earlier. I didn't mention him, uh, Uzi-11. But now uh, we're really pushing our A-10s in, and they're doing their thing. And uh, one day we had a, a flight of two going right here. The flight lead was shot down. Uh, and captured. The wingman dropped down to try to cover him and was blown out of the sky and killed. So we lost two airplanes right there. 
Uh, a couple days later, we lost another A-10 on a FAC mission, call sign Neil 5-3. The guy punched out, was on the ground. He was on the ground for a few minutes. We launched a recovery package to try to get to him. But before that they could get there, the guy was scarfed up and he was uh, taken prisoner, uh, released later on. We had uh, a, an F-16, Benji 5-3, right here. Guy uh, basically just had an engine failure. When you fly a single-seat airplane and the engine fails, you're a glider, okay? And so he tried to get out of enemy territory. He didn't quite make it, and it was right into nighttime. He punched out. He's on the ground. And um, we had down here sitting on alert uh, the Army, uh, 3rd Battalion of the 160th, the Night Stalkers. They were on alert for CSAR. They got the mission. They blasted off, flew up there, found this guy. Uh, they had a pretty good grid on him from his radio and everything. Went in there at night uh, using uh, NVGs and flared and all that kind of stuff and literally flared landed right next to him physically, picked him up and got him out of there. And the Army made that recovery. They felt pretty good about that. Uh, successful mission. Plus the Army now, has already, they're probing into enemy territory. They're across border and they're starting to lose helicopters and Tango 1-5 was blown out of the sky. The guys were not recovered. So they're starting to take losses. And then we had a very interesting mission that occurred right here. Preparatory to the ground campaign, we started putting in special forces team to do strategic reconnaissance force to watch the enemy to see how the enemy was moving as we started moving our forces forward. And these were Army Special Forces Green Beret teams. And we put one of the teams in there, ODA 525. We put them in right there, right along that road. The Night Stalkers took them in, flew to a GPS coordinate, dropped them off, and they made their hide site, and they were hiding, watching this road. They weren't there to bother anybody, just collect intelligence. Unfortunately, the next morning, when the local farmers came out to do their morning thing, they had their kids with them. And the kids noticed that the ground was a little different. And so they walked over and literally picked up the camouflage and went eyeball to eyeball with the soldiers. They've been compromised. Oh, Lord. And then they ran away jabbering. And they go, oh, we're in trouble now. What do we do? So uh, <clears throat> their team leader, a guy by the name of Balwentz, said, uh, we're here to do a mission, but we're going to have to move. So they destroyed a bunch of their gear in place, grabbed what they could to move, and went to a different location, which they thought would be a better hide site. The enemy found them there a couple hours later, so now they're compromised, and they are in trouble. And they needed to get out of there. Now, the Army calls that a hot exfil. I call that a seesaw, okay? Southeast Asia, when we were flying the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we used to work with teams out there all the time doing this kind of stuff. And more often than not, when those guys would get in trouble on those team missions, they would call it a hot exfil. It was a SAR. It was a CSAR. We used A1s for cover. We used helicopters for recovery. More often than not, you would get out there. These guys had been hit. First thing you ask them, where are you? I have no idea where I am. Because they had been hit. They started jettisoning gear. They're running, and they've got a rifle and a radio. And then that's when they call for you. Okay? But we would always know about what box that they were in, so we knew where to begin looking for them. We'd find them and then mount this mission. Very, very similar situation here. These guys are in deep, they're in trouble, they've been compromised, and they need to get out of there. <clears throat> situation kind of comparable, if you will, to the guys up here at Al Queen, Corvette 03. But these guys did things a little bit differently. They had one more piece of equipment with them that turned out to be very useful. They had a GPS receiver. Okay? So what did they do? They turned it on, they noted their location, and they called in and said, we're at these grids, would you please come and pick us up? And about an hour and five minutes later, Night Stalkers rolled in, landed right over the top of them, picked them up, and got them out of Dodge. Now, 
Let's contrast this with this. Is there a lesson learned here? Is there something we can do to make things better? Sure, and we got that, and we're much better about that now. The value of GPS. Well, in the meantime, <clears throat> these guys are in trouble. The bad guys are closing in around them. They need some help. They need some firepower. They're way beyond any Army help that can get out there in time. So one of the guys takes out a PRC-90 radio, turns on guard frequency, and starts screaming for help. And we got F-15s, F-16s buzzing around all there, and they hear all this. And hey, who are these guys calling us down here? This is a, uh, I think they call themselves Bulldog. I think it was their call sign. Who's this Bulldog? And AWACS says, those are friendlies. Help them out. Well, okay. So they start flocking over here to Bulldog, and they make radio contact with these guys, and they need some firepower. They need some close air support, okay? Well, these F-16 guys are bubbas or bubbas buzzing around up there at like 500 knots, and they got a problem because they got to find this team that's right down there. And so the team's trying to talk them in, and they're saying, like, okay, uh, like, do you see the big river? Well, well, from up here, I got about 10 rivers, guys. Which one? Well, okay. So, but, but these guys had the presence of mind to be able to talk these guys in, get eyes on them on the ground, and then roll in and start dropping things like Mark 84 2,000-pound bombs, CBU-87 cluster bombs that don't, kill, don't care who they kill, okay? All around them, sterilize the area just long enough for the night stalkers to fly to those precise coordinates and get their asses out of Dodge. And it worked. We learned a lot from this mission. Army learned a lot from this mission. And again, contrast it with the guys over here, uh, the Corvette 03 guys. And there, there's the team, this again, just to show them. This is when they were looking good going in there. Right? So they, were all, they were all plussed up and ready to go. So we learned two, uh, we, we relearned two very important lessons there. Okay. Week six, now it's time for the ground campaign, okay? We're getting serious here now. In fact, how many of you all knew that the ground campaign was actually called Desert Saber? That's what the Army called it. That's the name of the plan, okay? Finally, Schwarzkopf unleashes his ground forces, and they are massive, and they go charging up there, and they end up fighting a, basically a 100-hour ground campaign. And the Marines go charging up here with two divisions, and they're doing their thing, and we got Arabs over here, and we lose an OV-10 over here. These guys are shot down. One guy captured, one guy killed. And right that second event was the end of the OV-10 in U.S. Air Force and Marine combat because that's what killed the program right there, that mission right there. Uh, after that, they were all decommissioned. Uh, but uh, anyway, the Marines hit the, uh, the bad guys right here with two divisions. They go roaring in there. They've been plussed up with a bunch of armor. The Arab forces over here, the, uh, the Egyptians and the Syrians, I think, have yet to leave the line of departure. And over here in the west, we had uh, the 2-plus the U.S. Corps, 7th Corps and 18th Airborne Corps, who are going to go up, and their plan is they're going to come charging out through, uh, into Iraq like this, turn the corner over here, and then go up here and create a shield of steel up here and all those Iraqi forces that are in here and bag the whole damn force of them in one place. Tremendous plan, okay? Well, a plan never survives contact with the enemy, right? And when the Marines hit these guys, the, the, the Iraqi forces started to crumble and they started heading up these roads. And these roads became the highway of death. And all of a sudden, we've got thousand-car truck convoys and every fighter pilot worth the assault, bomber pilot, everybody wanted a piece of that action, man. That was the target of the century. And so we're wailing into these guys and just killing them left and right. And, and the Marines charge up in here, 
And, and one of their tactical objectives is to, seal the, the, is to seize the airfield there at Al Jabber, okay? So in the midst of all of this, uh, we've got a bunch of Marine uh, AV-8s up here. And you can see now there's Magic 1-4 was a one shot down. Pride 1-6 was shot down. And then Jump 4-2 right here was an, was an AV-8. He's up here. He's bombing trucks, having a good time. And he gets hit. And, but his airplane is still relatively flyable. Now, he knew, he, he was the squadron intelligence officer, and he knew that that morning at 10 o'clock that the 2nd Marine Division was going to seize the airfield at Al Jabber. So he goes, I'm going to save this airplane. I'm going to be a nice guy. So he sets up to land his airplane at Al Jabber, right? And he's coming down final, and the airplane's bucking and snorting and ripping and trying to let go on him. He looks down, and he sees all these guys running around, and he notices two things about them. Number one, they don't look like U.S. Marines. And number two, they're all shooting at him. The Marines aren't quite there yet. So he, he tries to go around, he, he pushes the throttle back up, and that airplane doesn't like that. And he gets down about to the, end, the south end of the airfield, and the airplane starts coming apart. So he jettisons out of the airplane, floats to the ground, gets down there, gets out his radio, and he's trying to call his wingman, you know, and sound cool on the radio, because that's really the most important thing. That's really the most important thing. Okay, and in the meantime, down here in one of the task forces, one of the Marine task forces, the battalion commander is sitting there and he's watching all this happen and he watches this guy eject and he floats to the ground and he assumes he's a, he's a friendly, okay? There aren't very many Iraqis flying by that late in the war. Okay, so he, 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 he notices about where this guy is and he calls his forward company who called their forward platoon, who called their forward team, who called their forward squad to go over the berm and pick up this Marine. So three young Marine guys jump up, run over the berm, Hey, Captain, come on. We're going to rescue you. We're your rescue team. Great. Okay, so now the Jolly Greens have scrambled. The, the, the task force is being built. The A-10s are coming up to do the big rescue, and these three Marines just rescue this guy. Hey, if it works, don't argue with it, right? <laughs> so we got him out of there. <clears throat> In the meantime, this big battle continues over here, and we're just wailing away at all these bad guys, and now the Army's up there, and we've got 18th Airborne Corps has turned the corner, and they're charging east, and they got the 24th Division here in front with Mad Barry Caffrey doing his thing, and they got the 101st Air Assault Division, and they're coming forward with all their assets, and down here they've got four heavy divisions with tanks and all that stuff we bought in the 1980s to fight the Russians. It's all hub-to-hub -hub online, and it's charging forward to the east, and it is the battle of the century, right? And, I mean, it is just one hell of a show going on there. And in the middle of all that, we have, uh, we have an A-864 shot down right here. The guys land, get out of their helicopter, and the Army guys were wearing these special harnesses such that if another one of their helicopters landed, they could run up and literally strap themselves to the side of the helicopter, and it would pick them up and get them out of there. And they did that. That was a successful recovery. And they've perfected this procedure to this day. Hey, if, if rescue works, don't argue with it, okay? Just learn from it, okay? So they did that. Uh, and up here in the north now, we got all these bad guys flowing north, and the plan is, the tactical plan is now, the, as these divisions are coming forth, the bad guys are down to these last two roads. So the 101st Air Assault Division is, is leapfrogging forward to a place called Viper, Forward Operating Base Viper. And they seize control of this. This is on the morning of the 27th now, three days into the campaign. They take control of this airfield, and they had six battalions of attack helicopters assigned to them. They're shoving these guys in there. They're launching out of there. They're going up and doing engagement area Thomas and over here to the causeway, and they're beating up on all bad guys. 
and the, in the meantime, over the top of them, is every fighter in the world, Navy, Marine, Air Force, bombers, B-52s, just wailing away at all these bad guys along here. And all this stuff is mixed up. All these airplanes are using the same airspace, airspace at the same time. It's extremely dangerous. Air Force commanders, Army commanders are trying to sort all this out, but the battle is running itself now, okay? In the midst of all of this, a flight of F-16s come into the area, call sign MUT-41, four F-16s. They're assigned to go down there, drop underneath the clouds, because it's kind of a rainy day, and now the oil fires are burning, and it's getting real foggy and everything, cloudy. So they drop down. They're looking for targets. The flight lead, Captain Bill Andrews, doesn't see anything. He pushes his throttle forward to go back up through the clouds when his airplane explodes. He's hit by some kind of missile. He jettisons out of the airplane, floats to the ground. His wingman notes about where he is on the ground, calls in that he's down, that he's down there, got a fairly good location on the guy. Another A-10 further south of there goes up there, confirms the location. So we know we got a survivor on the ground. We got a report. We got a location on the guy. So <coughs> the rules of engagement at that time were the cross-flight operation for recovery would be done by the soft guys. Okay, they're down there. They got their helicopters. They're ready to go. Well, when the when the news of his shoot down came back into the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, they saw where this guy was and they realized that the guy is down right in the middle of the AFA Republican Guard Division, which is still at about 85% strength. Extremely dangerous situation. It's daytime. The soft guys look at this. They realize, we're not going to do this in the daytime. This is exactly the kind of place where we don't want to send our guys. It's much too dangerous. So they call the third of the 160th, the Night Stalkers, and tell them to start planning for a night recovery mission, okay, which makes a lot of prudent sense. Okay, well... When they call back to the Joint Rescue Coordination Center saying, we're not going to fly the mission now, we're going to go at night, some people saw that as a refusal to go. Now, remember the acrimony that had built up earlier from Corvette 03. So, again, the comments are being made back and forth. The soft guys won't go. In the midst of all of this, a very senior-ranking Air Force officer hears all of this bickering. All morning long, he's been working with the Army guys trying to sort out who's got control of this road so we don't have all our airplanes running against in, into each other. And he hears this bickering going on about these soft guys. Now, this particular individual had been shot down in Laos in 1969, had been rescued. He understood the importance of rescue. It meant a lot to him. So on his own, he walks over to an Army command and control element there in the Tactical Air Control Center, it's called the Battlefield Coordination Element. And these were a bunch of Army guys that were talking directly to 18th Airborne Corps and 7th Corps and all those units up there. And he points to the map, and he knew about the operation at Viper. He knew there was a bunch of helicopters out there. So he points to the map and says, I got an F-16 guy down right here. Would you possibly have a helicopter that could go pick him up? Well, that question got morphed into a field order, which was now called forward to 18th Airborne Corps. 101st Air Assault, and the, Air Bo and the, the uh, Aviation Brigade of the 101st, which was now ensconced here at Viper. I didn't mention, in the meantime, Bill Andrews, when he hit the ground, he broke his leg. Bad guys run up, took control of the guy, and they're starting to hobble him away when <clears throat> Bill hears an A-10 fly over his head <clears throat> that came over and saw his position, and he, in just a few, a few yards away, he sees an SA-9 missile battery elevate to fire a missile. 
And so just as that missile's leaving the rail, it stuns the guards. Bill still had his survival radio. So he grabs his radio and he, and he yells on the frequency, uh, missile, missile, break, break. And the A-10 guy heard him, did a maneuver, dropped some flares, and the missile missed him. Now, when the guards realized what Bill had just done, they were not happy. And they took it out on Bill, and they took it out on his radio. But he saved that kid up above him, okay? And he was awarded the Air Force Cross for that, as a matter of fact. But uh, anyway, so Bill's been captured, but we don't know it. So we're going to do our thing here, see? So this field order to go rescue this guy gets called forth to Viper. And there, the colonel that was in the command of the Aviation Brigade, he's there. He's uh, rallying his forces. He's pushing attack battalions out of here with Apaches and Cobras up into these engagement areas here. And he wants to go rescue these guys. And he calls in one of his attack battalion commanders and says, Hey, Dick, I want you to get some airplanes airborne and go up there and pick up this guy. And, and this young lieutenant colonel said, Sir, I can't do that. What? you got to go rescue this guy. He said, Sir, if you order me to fly the mission, I'll fly the mission. But I can't order my guys to do this because that's a suicide mission. They're not coming back. There's no way we can survive that. Mm, okay, thank you very much. Go fly your mission. So he looks out on the ramp. And here's a Black Hawk sitting there. Well, who does that Black Hawk belong to? Well, sir, that belongs to the 2nd Battalion of the 229th Aviation from Fort Rucker, Alabama. This was an Apache battalion that was a training battalion that was plussed up and sent over there to the war, attached to the 101st Air Assault to help them do these kind of missions. And they had attached to them a couple of Black Hawks that they used for utility missions, okay, and things like CSARs, okay? Uh, okay, uh, gee... Uh, where's the battalion commander? Well, sir, that's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bryan, and he's right now up in engagement area, Thomas, shooting tanks. Okay, where's the operations officer? Well, sir, that's Captain Tom, and he's right now up on the causeway shooting tanks. Well, who's in charge out there right now? Well, sir, the assistant operations officer is in charge of everything. Well, get him in here. Who is it? It's Lieutenant Flood. Get him in here. So Flood reports in smartly, and he says, Flood, who's flying that Black Hawk there? Well, sir, that's Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Garvey. <laughs> And Mr. Godfrey, two Army warrant officers. He said, the good men? Yes, sir. Both Vietnam vets, multiple tours, great pilots. Uh, you think they'd want to fly a rescue mission? Absolutely, sir. Yes, sir. Get them in here. So they report in there. He says, guys, here's the deal. We've got this guy shot down up here, and I want you to go rescue him. Uh, okay, sir. Well, we just arrived here. We don't have maps of that area yet. Don't worry about maps. Get airborne. Talk to AWACS. AWACS will vector you in to him. Do the recovery. Okay, sir, uh, yeah, we can do that, and uh, we're just, uh, what's the situation? You got any up, update on the intel? Uh, no, I don't. Things are moving so fast. Generic briefing, you know it's dangerous up there. Just be careful. Uh, okay, well, sir, uh, F-16 guy, right? Yes, sir. Uh, so just one guy, right. Well, what do you know about the guy? Well, oh, you know, by the way, I heard that he's, he's hurt himself. He's broken a leg or something. He's, oh, well, we need some medical support. Now, the flight surgeon just came in with us. Can we take her with us? Uh, yeah, okay. So they grabbed Major Ron Cornum throw her on the helicopter with uh, two pathfinders for personal security. And on the way out, they decide that the ops officer now has just landed and he's refueling to go back up on another mission. They grab him and ask him to fly escort for them while they go up and rescue this guy. They don't know he's already been captured. In the meantime, several flights of F-16s, Marine F-A-18s, dipped down under the clouds, flew through that area, came out of that area, called AWACS and said, whatever you do, don't send a helicopter in there because it's much too dangerous, unsurvivable. Left hand didn't talk to the right hand. That message was not passed. These guys turn blades. They get airborne. 
They take off, they turn left, they fly right across the lead brigade of the 24th Infantry Division. They are in contact and every one of their tubes is firing and there's bullets flying everywhere. No pre-coordination, nobody's talking to nobody. They're out there and as is usually the case, the Black Hawk is outrunning the Apaches and the Apaches are saying, Get, do a turn so we can catch up with you. He's zigzagging and they're doing, trying to catch him. And <clears throat> AWACS is talking to him and then he turns them east and as they're heading east, at one point he says, now be careful because you're about to enter the red zone. And about that time, every gunner in the world opened up on those guys, blew them out of the sky. They crash. Five guys immediately killed. And then the other three, including Major Cornum, are all become POWs, badly broken up. It's a real mess. Uh, when she gets thrown in the slammer, the first guy she runs into is Bill Andrews, okay, who's been a POW now for, for quite a while. So the entire mission was a complete, absolute bust, okay? But when you do the analysis on this, you have to ask yourself, but wait a minute. If the soft guys were in charge of doing the combat recovery, they said no. They were overridden. They, were, uh, they said no because they thought it was too dangerous. They were overridden. It was too dangerous, and people died. Hmm, maybe they were calling it about right, okay? So maybe in that failure we derive some success, unfortunately. I hate to say that, but some, some good men died on that. Absolute debacle. And again, here's, uh, here's Andrews. He's uh, still on active duty, st still an Air Force colonel. There he is uh, recuperating. And then here's the guys, uh, Godfrey Garvey, and I, I can't remember the names of the other guys there. I should. But uh, they, they died for nothing. And in fact, interesting vignette here. It's interesting how things happen. The battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Bryan, had been a lieutenant pilot, uh, 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 army pilot in, in Vietnam. In April of, of 1972, he was in an outfit called the F Troop of the 8th Cavalry. Uh, when BAT-21 was shot down, the first aircraft that tried to recover BAT-21, Bravo, Gene Hamilton, this was not in the movie, was a helicopter from F Troop of the 8th Cavalry. Brian was there then when that happened, and he remembered that story. And when I interviewed him for this story, he said, I was up in engagement area, Thomas. I could hear scattered pieces of the conversations going on, and when I realized what these guys were doing, I immediately flashed back to my three compatriots who were killed trying to rescue Bat-21 Bravo. So sometimes history does repeat itself. Okay, results. So what do we get out of all this? Now, during the war, we lost a total of 43 Allied aircraft. And you can see the numbers there. Two of them were, were fratricides. We lost an F-16 uh, that was shot down by its own bomb that went off below the aircraft. Lost an F-18 the same way. Uh, and the Brits lost one, too, that way. Uh, and you can see the numbers there. Uh, Italians, Kuwaitis, RAF, they've all, they all lost uh, aircraft. Of those, 87 guys uh, were isolated in enemy or neutral territory. And of those, 47 were immediately killed. I'm not going to rescue them. One guy is still missing. 25 guys were immediately captured because, again, they were shot down right over airfields or right over enemy formations. Wasn't much we were going to do about that. We had 14 guys exposed in enemy territory for some length of time that could have been rescued. Of those 14, we rescued eight. And the other six were, in my opinion, rescuable, but they were captured. Quicksand 1-2, the A-6 I told you about, both guys lost their radios. Devin Jones, backseater, uh, slate 4-6, uh, uh, lost, uh, 
something will happen to his radio, and he would never talk to me. Uh, uh, Corvette 03 we talked about, and the Hunter 26 was the Saudi airplane that went down, and they'd never given us any data on that. He was possibly rescuable. So out of 14 guys, we got over half. It's not bad. What did we learn from that? We learned, first of all, tough, tough theater of operations. But you know what? When it comes to combat, they're all tough. And so we've got analysis tools, analysis tools now that help us to work through this, sort out the threats, sort out what we need to know so that our guys can do this better and more smartly. And I, and I still work with these guys. I give them a lot of lectures and things like this. I talk with the young men and women today who are doing these missions, command control uh, uh, folks mostly, to try to help them develop the mental paradigms so that when these, when these events occur, they understand what history has taught us and they can do it smarter. And I'm proud to say the trends are very positive in that respect. Okay, but this is what we got out of that. Okay, <coughs> bad theater. Reinforce the fundamental truth that the best CSAR device is to not get your aircraft shot down in the first place. Okay, think about that. Okay, and we're getting better about that all the time. That being the case, what is the ultimate CSAR weapon? How about the UAS? Uh, uh, you know, unmanned drones. Why? Because they get shot down, there ain't no CSAR. Okay, and that's where we're going. In fact, I think the F-22, the way that if you look at the trends that are out there today, will probably be our last manned fighter-type aircraft. We're getting to the point where we can do everything else with unmanned drones and missiles and electrons and everything else. Uh, so it could very well be that in the Air Force, I think if you look at the projections, the last people wearing wings will be what? The cargo pilots, because we'll never trust our most precious cargo, which is our people, to a robot. So the last people out there wearing Air Force wings will be the cargo pukes with the little spoon in their thingy right there. God bless them all. Okay, so anyway, that's what you learned from that. Uh, going into Desert Storm, Air Force CSAR capability had been dramatically reduced from its peak during the war in Southeast Asia, and that's a fact, and I tried to document that for you. Uh, and there were ramifications to that, things we had to straighten out. Number four, same time, the expectations were very high because of the bar talk. All throughout those interim years, doing red flags and all that, at the bars, we were talking SAR procedures and CSAR and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 the, and, the, and the understanding was that if you get bagged, the old saying, the war will stop to get you out, and those kind of things, those kind of ideas were passed along. But those messages were not coordinated with the helicopter guys because they had a different message uh, totally. <clears throat> and this too, I talked about Corvette 03. Uh, the non-rescue of those guys caused a, a real morale problem, and it's still out there to this day. Uh, CENTAC did not have a quick, accurate, reliable way to locate downed airmen. Old survival radios over cell of the SARSAT and the AWACS and rivet joint. Single survival radios issued and GPS unexploited. Big thing. In fact, this, this was still... I could tell you more stories about GPS. I mean, it, it seems like every day we come up with a new problem with GPS. But we've also had some successful rescues now because of the GPS. So the technology works. Uh, <clears throat> Regardless, uh, personnel from all the various services, and I talked about some of the missions, and SOCCENT uh, did uh, run many missions, uh, and there were some interest service, Army only, Marine only, that I, that I highlighted the uh, rescues of note. So uh, we were getting our guys back. Uh, one of the big controversies was that, uh, and this is shown up in the histories later on, one of the reasons with the soft guys were they were off flying soft missions, and a lot of times they weren't available to do rescue duties. That's not true. 
it was actually quite the opposite. And I extensively interviewed guys on this, and they told me that there were many times when they turned down soft missions because they had to keep those airplanes on Ready 5 alert for recovery duty. So they honored their contract. But the problem was they did not have the ability with reasonable assurance of, of survival to be able to do the S in CSAR. Big Blue Air Force had to do that. And that was the breakdown right there. Okay? Uh, and it should be noted that during the conflict, zero rescue personnel were lost or killed on rescue missions directly or directed by SOCSENT. Now think back to the numbers I showed you before about Southeast Asia. All the rescues that we did, but the number of airplanes we lost and the people we lost doing it. Here, under SOCSENT control, we had zero losses. Okay? But the exception was Bengal 1-5, the helicopter that I mentioned to you, the one up and did the recovery for Bill Andrews. They were shot down. Those guys were killed. But they were not launched by SOCSENT. They were launched by the TACC, the Tactical Air Control Center. So the system was not allowed to work. The system was short-circuited, and people died. Very controversial point. Two points of view on that. Colonel George Gray was the senior airman within SOCSENT, and that's what he said right here. And then General Glossen's word down here. And I, uh, every time I read Glossen's words there, I get a kind of a little bit of a chill. That's a very, very cavalier thing for him to say. Uh, and and uh, the helicopter guys obviously didn't feel that way. And then lastly, and I think this is a biggie, and I've debriefed this to a lot of folks, making CENTAF General Horner responsible for CSAR and then withholding operational control of the combat recovery assets that he needed to do that was a clear violation of the unity of command, which is a principle of war, okay? He had all the assets that he needed uh, except his combat recovery assets. He had the rivet joint and the fighters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the components owned the, sea, the combat recovery assets. So there was a disconnect right off. This bit us in the ass again in Bosnia uh, around the time of O'Grady when we had the F-117 mission over uh, Operation Allied Force in 1999. It was an issue going into to, uh, o OEF in Afghanistan, and it wasn't until finally in Afghanistan when the then uh, Chief of Air Oper Operations over there, uh, Lieutenant General Chuck Wald, former Air Force forward air control from Southeast Asia, okay, uh, stepped in and said, this is wrong, this is not going to stand, and he called back to the Air Force and said, send me a rescue squadron under my control in every sense, it's not been a problem anymore. Because we figured out what the problem was. And we got a squadron over there under his control, and we would have done this. Having said that, though, and, 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 I, and I say this only from the purpose of trying to understand, I honestly believe if we had sent one of our Air Force rescue squadrons from the Air Rescue Service back in the States, uh, over there, H-3s or something like that, we most probably would have gotten some of those helicopters blown out of the sky and good guys killed. I really honestly believe that because uh, <clears throat> all the war fighting sense for that community had migrated over into the soft community and those good, those good men and women who were working there in the rescue center, as good as they were, they were not combat aviators. They were peacetime peace aviators and they had to learn through mistakes and the hard way and that means blood, okay? And so I, I, I honestly believe that through a twist of fate, we almost had the best of both worlds here without even realizing how bad we'd screwed up. Okay. Okay. And then one more comment from General Glossen there. 
Uh, Sea Star was broke before the war because of a mismanagement and a failure of the Air Force leadership. It was broke during the war because of the sink's acquiescence to not use his fist and anvil to correct it in the interest of harmony. What he was trying to tell me was that they tried to address this to General Schwarzkopf to sort this out, and General Schwarzkopf said, that is air stuff, you sort it out. And it never got sorted out. And then the conflict was over. Unfortunate. So, I think overall, I think this is what uh, Desert Storm tells us from the perspective, perspective of combat search and rescue, and I'll let you read that. And this is what I tried to explain in my book. This is what all that stuff is all about in there. And, 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 and uh, I think it's a fascinating story. It's a story, of, of once again, of great, uh, great heroes. Everybody got that? Okay, one more point that I want to make, and then I'll, and I'll get you out of here. Uh, why do we do all of this? Uh, because not every nation does this, okay? Uh, it's something that's very uniquely American to us. First of all, we do it, I think, because of human nature. If people get in trouble, you want to help out, and that's very normal. Secondly, we do it because we can. We are a rich, industrial nation. We can build the stuff. We can organize for it. We can train and equip. That has a lot to do with it. Normally, when we go in with a coalition force, we are the ones who will provide this, with, with a few exceptions. Uh, some of the other nations are developing this. But by and large, we have done this because we had the stuff, the training, and the organization. Thirdly, we don't, we don't want our young kids to be exploited by the enemy. Intelligence, propaganda, we don't want to see our kids on TV getting their heads cut off. We understand the, 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 the danger and the value of that to the enemy. And fourthly, we have within our military today, we have this bond with our young men and women that says, look, we're going to bring you into the military. We're going to organize you. You're a volunteer. We're going to organize you. We're going to train you, and we're going to equip you, and we're going to send you off to do really tough things. But if you get in trouble, we're not going to abandon you. If you get trapped behind enemy territory, we're going to try to get you out. If you get wounded, we've got medical services to try to take care of you. That's what the Army medevac community does. That's another great story. If you get captured and we can figure out a way to rescue you, we will do that. But when it's all over, one of our first demands is to get you home. We will not abandon you. That's why we're still looking for Michael Spiker, 1,700 guys from Southeast Asia, 7,000 guys from Korea, and we're even going back and looking at the 70,000 we lost in World War II that aren't home yet because we want to honor that bond. If you get in trouble, we will try to get you out. And, and that's very fundamental in the way that we uh, prosecute the American way of war. That's very important now in this war because we're fighting an enemy that says to its kids, here, put on this vest, go into that restaurant or that mosque and blow yourself up for some greater good and take two or three or ten or fifty of them. They want their kids to die. We want our kids to live. So that's the story of Combat Search and Rescue in Desert Storm. And I hope you enjoyed that. It's, it's great history. It's the story of your young men and women doing great things. I'm sorry? Sure.